Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tith mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness, those you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Uh, you have blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Then Matthew twenty-two thirty-five through 40. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love with Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On those two commandments depend all law and the prophets. Right. Thank you, Annabeth. And our sermon text for today comes from Malachi. Uh, so this is Malachi 3, 6 through 15. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me. The whole nation of you, bring the full tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer. For you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and the vine in your field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed. For you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have you spoken against me? You have said it is is in vain to serve the Lord. What is the profit of your keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now he will call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put to the God to the test and they escape. So we are uh, resuming our study of Malachi. Now, uh, for those of you uh, who are keeping score at home, you may have noticed that I have skipped a section. Uh, chapter uh, 3, verses 1 through 5. Uh, don't worry, I'm going to go back to that. Um, I've done that for two reasons. Uh, first of all, uh, those verses contain some material uh, that is also picked up again in the last few verses of Malachi. And so I thought it would be better to combine the two passages. And second, uh, I thought the material would be more appropriate uh, the first week of Advent. So if you're a big Malachi fan and you're like, I want to know about every word of this book and you were a little concerned, don't be. Don't worry. I'm watching out for you. Okay. That was for uh, Ryan. I know he's a big Malachi fan, so... Want to make sure he knew. He didn't get worried. So uh, by way of recap here, uh, remember that Malachi was what we call a post-exilic prophet. He is uh, delivering his message to a group of Judeans who are rebuilding their civilization after its destruction by the Babylonian Empire. Uh, And the problem is uh, their situation is very precarious. Um, Despite a lot of messages that have been given to the, by the prophets of hope, they find very little to be hopeful about. 
As a result, they become apathetic. They become dispirited, believing that God uh, is no longer a real and influential part of their actual lives. And this breakdown in their relationship with God, uh, a relationship that was so fundamental to who they were as a community, had led to empty and perfunctory worship practices, which is what Malachi is confronting in his message. Now, Malachi's message has been about trying to uh, work to reassure the people that despite their circumstances, God still has a future for them. And they have a purpose in his plan, not only for their community, but for the redemption of creation. And despite the disaster, God has not given up on his chosen people and will accomplish all that he has promised. Having reassured the people on these points, Malachi then goes on to identify places where the Judeans' worship has fallen short and actually continue to reinforce this break in their relationship with God. And so for Malachi, it was important to reform their worship and their practices in order to give them courage, faith, and hope that were so lacking in the community. And this week, what we're going to look at is the practice of tithing, which of course is why it's probably one of only two sermons you ever hear from Malachi. (laughs) If you've been in the church any length of time, you've probably heard these verses usually used to encourage you to donate money, uh, usually in conjunction with a church building campaign. So uh, I'm sure some of you have uh, actually heard this sermon before. Now, as we're going to soon learn, this is actually a pretty flawed approach. Because it completely removes this passage from its ancient Jewish context. So in order to really understand what Malachi wants to tell us, we need a more comprehensive approach, which is what I hope to do today. Now, uh, so let us turn now to the text and examine it and see what it is that Matthew would have to teach us. So if we start at verse 6, Uh, Malachi begins, as usual, by stating a premise uh, for his argument. And usually that premise is something that that is uh, fundamental, something that that can't really be argued with. And so here he starts off with the premise uh, that God does not change. Now, um, if you're a systematic theologian, uh, we refer to this concept. We have to, of course, we have to give it a big name. And we call this the immutability of God. Uh, Now, the doctrine of the immutability of God is used by theologians as kind of an abstract concept. It's uh, more philosophical. Uh, It's also highly debated. Lots of ink has been spilled uh, trying to attempt to resolve places in the Bible where God changes his mind or acts in contradictory ways. However, for the ancient Israelites, this wasn't an abstract doctrine for theologians to debate. It was something real. With something concrete, and they express an essential feature of the relationship of the people to God. It was a statement about the faithfulness of God. God does not forget. He doesn't fail in his promises. And proof of this, as Malachi gives them, is their very existence. Babylon had not destroyed them despite their greatest attempts. Their disobedience that led to Babylon punishing them did not end their relationship with God. They were back in Jerusalem. They had a new temple. And what God wants them to understand is that he still has a plan and purpose for them. Uh, Notice how Malachi kind of uses this kind of like outdated term. He calls them old children of Jacob or sons of Jacob. 
Uh, remember, uh, if you know your Bible history, it was Jacob way back in the book of Genesis uh, who basically uh, throughout his whole life acted like, a, you know, just like a total jerk. Um, you know, he stole, he's famous for stealing the birthright from his uh, brother by deceiving his blind father, which is pretty detestable thing to do. Definitely a jerk move. Yet, despite Jacob's repeated deceitful action, God continues to bless Jacob. God remains faithful despite Jacob's many feelings. And so this term is trying to recall that to the people about uh, this, is, this is how God is faithful. Um, it also leads us back to the very beginning of Malachi, the premise that Malachi started with. Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. See, Malachi has identified that fundamental, the heart of their problem, uh, the heart of the Judeans' problem was this breakdown in the relationship between the people of God. Again, we see uh, Malachi pointing to the Judeans' continuing miraculous existence as proof of, their, of the faithful relationship of God. Uh, civilizations that were conquered like this really didn't come back. And so this is nothing short of miraculous that the Judeans are here in Jerusalem. Uh, here we see Malachi adding to this concept of the unchanging nature of God, uh, hoping to boister the confidence of the Judeans in their continuing relationship with God. Now, I think it's important to pause here. I want to pause here because I want to make two points uh, because I think they're key. I think they're key in a very practical way, in a way that we can use in like our lives. I mean, you know, one of the things that's tough about this passage is, you know, this is Malachi. I mean, like really, what could be further from our everyday experience? Some, uh, a Jewish prophet from 2,500 years ago writing about a people rebuilding a civilization. And one of the, the challenges uh, of preaching, of taking this material, is trying to make it relevant to us who live in such a different world. But I think here, one of the things that we can identify with these people is anxiety. I mean, these people had anxiety about their situations. You know, we live in a world of anxiety at different times in our life. Uh, we've all experienced this. Uh, you know, this is something I struggle with uh, a lot of times. You know, I'm a doctor. And one of the things that I'm always worried about, especially since I owe like a ton of money, uh, is that one day someone is going to sue me. <laughs> and then since I have no other life skills, you know, I'm going to end up living under a bridge somewhere. And it, it, sometimes it can be very crippling to me to think about. And I have like, I have trouble sleeping sometimes. But one of the things that I've learned to do when I kind of experience these almost like anxiety attacks is to keep saying to myself, you know, you know, a lot of times, you know, like this fear is a, a lot of times irrational. And sometimes it's difficult to break out of that. But what, one of the things I do is try to remind myself of the facts. Like, what do I know is true? What can you anchor your life in, in the midst of these anxieties. And, you know, one of the most crucial things for me uh, is remembering that God isn't out to get me. God isn't against you. Uh, that God's not arbitrary. That God loves you. And that's what Malachi is trying to get across to the Judeans here. They're trying to get them to understand in the midst of their anxiety. And second, I think it is telling of God's character that for the second time, God has offered evidence of his continuing relationship with the Judeans. He just doesn't say, like, look, I'm faithful. 
He doesn't just say, look, I love you. He says, look, let me give you some tangible, observable proof. Uh, you know, here he's saying, like, look, the, the fact that you haven't been consumed, the fact that you t- still exist should mean something to you. Um, he's not offended by their lack of faith. He works instead to strengthen their faith by reminding them of these truths. Uh, Later, we will see Jesus do the same thing. You remember there's a man who uh, comes up to Jesus and and Jesus asks him if he believes. And, and And the man says to him, I believe, but help my unbelief. And Jesus commends that attitude. Of course, famously, there's Thomas. You know, Thomas is, uh, ha- is having a hard time to believing. And rather than, uh, like, uh, uh, condemn Thomas, Jesus offers his hands and says, look, check it out. Uh, you know, I want you to believe. I want to give you. I don't want to just, I, I don't want to just say it. I want you to feel it too. I want you to really, really believe. And so there seems to be this concern, not just to tell us things, but to give us proof. And I think both of those are, are, are what Malachi is trying to do to address the anxiety of these people. And I think that's something, both of these are something that can help us as we deal with anxiety in our own life. Now, uh, the concern of God to help his people in their midst of their anxiety uh, seems to be an important theme in the Bible. Uh, you know what the most frequent command in the Bible is? Does anybody know the answer to this? What's the most frequent command in the Bible? Do not be afraid. Do not, be afraid. Do not fear. Yeah, it's used like, like over 300 times. It's a very common thing in the Bible. Uh, Paul puts it, uh, and I love the way Paul puts it here in 2 Timothy, so I want to quote it now. God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And so for Malachi, and in many places in the scripture, these points are key to maintaining the relationship with God. As much as Malachi criticizes the Judeans, it's done in this, against this backdrop of loving reassurance. So on the basis that, God's prom, that, that God promises that he's ready and willing to return to their people if he returns to them, uh, this mutual turning is about restoring this covenant relationship with God. The essence of the covenant was that for, uh, for the Lord to be their God and for they to be his people. So if you read in the Old Testament, that's a common phrase. Look, the whole reason I am uh, entering into this relationship with you is so I can be your God and you can be my people. God wants a relationship. Uh, this invitation to return was also given by uh, Zechariah. And it seems like something simple. Uh, It seems like something that shouldn't be that hard, but as we read in Malachi, there's a barrier, okay? A barrier to the people returning. And that barrier is introduced in verse 7 when the people ask, how shall we return? So God says, if you return to me, I'll return to you. And the people say, how will we return? Now, that's not the best translation, uh, actually, a better reading of, would probably be something like, why do we have to return? Uh, as we found throughout Malachi, it's, it's become kind of typical. The Judeans are frequently unaware of what they are doing wrong, and they seem to be taken by surprise. And this is another example of that. They're like, well, why do we have to return? We're, we're, we're back in Jerusalem. Um, you know, what, what are we doing that's so wrong? Uh, so Malachi tells them, and he explains that they are robbing God. 
Well, that's an odd claim. Uh, it's almost to the point of being almost ridiculous. I mean, the text even seems to emphasize that by asking, like in a rhetorical question, will man rob God and have the people, and, and the people are like, how do you even do that? Uh, how is it possible? And so Malachi tells them, they're robbing God by not paying the full tithe. And the point Malachi is making is that the tithe is an obligation to God. And by withholding this tithe, they are in tithe, they are in fact stealing from God. Uh, remember, as I never tire of explaining, uh, the basis of the relationship between God and Israel is the covenant. And this covenant between God and Israel contains many features that are found in covenants throughout the ancient Near East. If you've been around me any uh, length of time, you know that I can't. I love explaining all this. Um, but one of the stipulations of these covenants that we see repeated uh, in these ancient documents is that the requirement for the lesser party or the vassal to make some sort of payment to the greater party. Remember, what's the name of the greater party? What, what's the term? The vassal is the lesser party. What's the greater party? Yeah? Suzerain. Yes, people have been listening. Um, so, yeah, that's a common feature. Uh, failure to do so in this ancient world was an, a serious infraction, and it resulted in the invocation of the covenant curses. So this issue that Malachi brings up would have been no light manner. Now, it's likely that this poor compliance among the Judeans was due to this precarious situation where they were in. Uh, it had not been so long ago that their civilization had become completely conquered. Jerusalem and the temple along with it had been completely leveled to the ground. They were not a wealthy or prosperous people, and they probably felt they couldn't afford the required tithe. However, here is where Malachi introduces something quite remarkable. If you read in verse 10, Malachi actually invites the people to put God to the test. Malachi promises that if the people pay this tithe, that they need not fear because God will bless them so much, it will be though as heaven itself is raining prosperity upon them. So much blessing will result from the giving of these tithes that other nations will take notice at the incredible flourishing of the land. Now, the reason this is so remarkable is that this is the only place in the Bible where God opens himself up to testing. In fact, we read other places like in Deuteronomy that it is forbidden to test God. Uh, here's a quote. You shall not put the Lord of your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. Uh, so if you remember in the Exodus, after the Exodus, the newly, is, the, the newly freed Israelites launched a rebellion out of concern for a lack of water. And God provided them with water at a place called Massa. But he was very angry at them for their lack of faith uh, because they had just been recklessly freed from Egypt. So what's interesting here is that we have uh, basically God doing a complete 180 on this principle about uh, testing. You know, before he says, like, it's totally forbidden. You don't do that. I get very upset when you try to test me. Here, he actually invites the people to test them. And if you were an ancient Judean, Remember, the Exodus was like the story you heard the most, okay? Uh, you heard it every year at Passover, but it was like everything to you and your identity. And you would have heard the story of your ancestors at Massa uh, uh, since you were a small child. 
And so this idea that you should test God would have been absolutely incredible. This prophet here is actually inviting you to do this. And what it would have signaled to you, I think, is how much God desperately wants to restore this relationship and provide for its people. It's an amazing example of the condescension of God to his people. And it's something, you know, frankly, that occurs over and over again and eventually, of course, culminates in the incarnation of God in Jesus Christ. Probably the biggest example of God condescending to meet his people. And so we see this here in Malachi, the same principle being expressed. So uh, having kind of set that up, so now's the point uh, where I could make the point that the application of this passage is that God wants us to give to the church and reassure everyone that we can do so without fear because God will bless our sacrificial giving. Uh, I could exhort us to have faith that well, God will provide for us and then talk about giving to our building program. That's usually the script here. However, I think Malachi is making a much bigger point and that we need to see, and we would miss it if I started shaking you down for offering. So to begin with, we have to understand what a tithe meant to Malachi's audience, okay? Um, the Hebrew word here used uh, for tithe is ma'aser, okay? And that actually means from 10. It means like a tenth, 10%, okay? So, so far, so good. Now, for the most part, uh, this wouldn't have been money, Okay, they didn't really use uh, money back then. Coinage was kind of a new thing at the time of Malachi. And uh, it probably wouldn't have been used in Israel. Israel had like a, uh, this was an agriculturally based barter economy. Uh, so the tithe would have been paid out of agricultural produce. Uh, the Judeans were expected to pay 10% of what their farm produced. So if you grew olives or dates or whatever, you would give 10% of your dates or olives. If you grew sheep, you would give 10% of the flock. Okay, so good enough. But to really understand what is meant for the tithe, we have to have a better understanding of how the ancient Israelites view their economy, which is mostly based on land, right? So not money, land, agricultural production ancient Near Eastern agricultural practices. We haven't done that in a while. And, uh, you know, it's not a Resurrection Church sermon if we don't talk about agricultural practices. Now, after the, we, we need to understand how the Israelites thought about land, okay? I promise this will be relevant. It's actually really cool. Um, after the Exodus, the Hebrews were given the land of Canaan as a gift from God. And that's key. It was a gift from God. This land was uh, then equitably distributed between the different tribes and clans and families. And you can read all about this process in excruciating and exhaustive detail at the end of the book of Joshua. But the point is that this land was tremendously significant to the Israelites because God had given it to them. And this givenness of the land meant that the Israelites were dependent upon God. They themselves could make no claim on the land. There was no reason they should have it other than the fact that it was given to them. It was not virtue of theirs by being indigenous to the land. They didn't take it by their own power. The only reason they possessed the land at all was because of God. And because God gave the Israelites the land, it was, it was proof. It was tangible proof of the relationship between God and, the, and his people. 
Frequently, the land is referred to in the Old Testament as the inheritance of Israel. And that's implying that there's this like familial father-son relationship between Israel and the people. This givenness, this givenness of the land, and particularly the way the land was equi- equitably distributed, that is a hard word to say, was a contrast to the normal practices of the ancient world. This was completely bizarre. Okay, In most ancient Near Eastern civilization, the land was entirely owned by the king or possibly some of the nobility. But Israel was much more of an egalitarian society. Now, the givenness of the land meant that the Israelite land practices also were very different than our modern conceptions of land ownership. Land ownership was not based on commercial deals. In fact, the land had a certain... Um, there were certain stipulations to it. It had to remain in the family it was given to. If economic hardship forced a family to sell their land, it eventually returned to the family. That meant that families could never permanently be dispossessed for them from their land, maybe for a few years, but not for very long. So if you were wealthy and you wanted to acquire more land by force, uh, that was totally forbidden. It's not something you could do in ancient Israel. In fact, it's what made the prophets like super upset. Lots of the prophets uh, get upset because the people are dispossessed from their land. Uh, and, it, and the reason why was because the land was key to this relationship between the people and God. And the overriding principle was the land belonged to God. Leviticus twenty five twenty three makes it clear. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity for the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me. Israel may possess the land and they had certain rights as a result, but God owned it. And that meant that they were not allowed to do anything they want. They were renters, okay? They couldn't abuse the land. They had certain responsibilities to the land as tenants. And one of these responsibilities was the tithe. The tithe can be thought of as rent that was paid for the use of the land. The Israelites were given the land by God for agricultural purposes, and in exchange, God is entitled a portion of the produce of the land. And this is why the Judeans' failure to pay the tithe is considered robbery by Malachi. Now, that's the land. That's the background here. Now, uh, the, and now I'm going to get to the big point. So this is where the sermon is going to get interesting. So if you're bored by agricultural uh, practices in the ancient Near East and land distribution, and, you know, I can't blame you, here's where you start paying attention. See, here's the thing about God. God does not need olive or dates or grapes or sheep, okay? When you're tithing to him, he doesn't need that. Anybody ever see Star Trek V? It's a terrible movie. But there's that scene in it where there's the God figure and he wants uh, Captain Kirk to give him the spaceship. And Captain Kirk says, what does God need with a spaceship? You know, anyways, best line of the movie. But uh, same thing here. God doesn't really need olives and dates, okay, or sheep. So what do you do with these ties? Now, part of what is done with the ties is they go for supporting the priests. 
So uh, the priests were from the tribe of Levi, and the tribe of Levi was not given land. So when they divided up in the land, the tribe of Levi was not given land uh, because their lives were supposed to be devoted to the worship of God rather than farming. Uh, the tithes went to the expenses involved in the worship of God. So the oil, you know, that was used in the lamps, the incense, uh, you know, the repairs and maintenance of the temple, all those kind of things were paid out uh, out of the tithes. Now, <clears throat> this is when we would uh, draw the analogy between ancient Israelite priests and modern church staff and the fact that we need to pay our pastors and that we need to support the facilities for worship, right? Except... It's much more complicated than that. You see, here's the thing. The vast majority of priests didn't actually work at the temple. Most of them were distributed in various towns throughout the land. And remember, in the Old Testament, the only place you could worship is in the temple. Okay? So this leads to an important question. If worship was only officially sanctioned in the temple of Jerusalem... And most of the priests were outside of Jerusalem. What did they do? And the answer is that they filled a variety of roles. Primarily, they were teachers who helped the people uh, live out the Torah practically in their lives. However, they had other roles that will probably surprise you. See, the key you have to understand is that in the ancient world, there was no separation of church and state. Israel was a theocracy. So the civil and religious authority were combined. So priests also did things like act as judges. They even took on roles that we would classify as bureaucratic. Uh, For example, I'll give you an example. If you look in the priestly code in Leviticus 19, weights and measures were supposed to be standardized and consistent. And so part of the priest's job was to make sure that this was the case in their towns. So the tithes not only supported the priests as their role as worship leaders, but also as civil and judicial authorities. However, the tithe didn't just go to the priests. Israel operated under this uh, seven-year system. And in the first, second, fourth, and fifth year of this seven-year system, an additional tithe was collected out of grain, wine, and oil. And these goods went to fund the expenses involved in the seven ritual feasts that were held throughout the year. So, you know, things like Rosh Hashanah and uh, Yom Kippur and Passover, those kind of things. It was called the Ma'asir Shani, or second tithe. And the point of it was that it ensured that everyone, including the poor, could participate in the feast. In other words... What I'm saying here is not only did the tithes go for worship, not only did the tithes go to civil and bureaucratic uh, uh, officials, they also went to pay for big nationwide parties. So that's pretty awesome. But there's more. There was also a third tithe. It was called the Ma'asur Ani. And this tithe was collected in the third and sixth year of the sabbatical years. And its purpose was to support the poor as well as widows, orphans, and foreigners. In other words, all the groups who didn't have access to the land. So, if we sum this up, we see that the tithe actually covers more than just to pay the priest's salaries and supplies for the temple. It pays for things 
it, it also pays for civil administrators, ensuring that the rule of law was held. It paid for parties, and it provided for the poor. In other words, this is about more. The tithe is about more than showing due reverence to God. It's more than like what we would call like the traditional churchy things. The tithe is also about building community. Building community involves worship and celebrating God together at temple services and festivals. But it also involves providing the means for a just and equitable society where the rights of all are preserved, not just those with the wealth and power to ensure it. It also involves ensuring the needs of the poor are met. So if we want to take this principle from Malachi and apply it today, we have limited Malachi's message if we only apply it to church building programs. Even more so, according to the logic of Malachi, if we are not supporting the work of the church, if we are not also promoting justice in our government through fair practices, if we are also not providing for the poor, and if we are also not throwing parties, then we are robbing God. Because all of these areas are affected when the Judeans withhold the tithe. Even more so, what's so cool about this is we can trust that God will bless our efforts in doing so because he is basically challenging us here to do so. And guess what? This is just not what Malachi says, but there's also this other guy named Jesus that says it too. So if you turn to our first reading in chapter 23, we find Jesus arguing with the Pharisees about what? The issue of tithing. <clears throat> and what he's doing here is he's rebuking the Pharisees for having a limited view of tithing. You see, by the time of Jesus, Israelite society had evolved beyond, you know, just the land-based agricultural system. Certain people like the Pharisees, the people in this passage that Jesus is interacting with, no longer need to produce food on land to make a living. However, like some of us, they might still have an herb garden. How many have an herb garden? I have an herb garden. It's awesome. Okay, I'm the only one who has an herb garden. Well, because these Pharisees were so, uh, were so, um, you know, like, were so, uh, what's the word here I'm looking for? Exacting about following the law, even though they only had this herb garden, what they would do was they would tie their herbs. Uh, and so when Jesus is saying, uh, you know, make sure uh, they, they uh, make sure to tie from their mint and dill and even cumin. And so, you know, I, I guess it's great that the priests would have seasoning for their food. But Jesus is like, that's not really the point of the tithe here. That's what Jesus is trying to say. That's why he calls them hypocrites. And he says what? They've neglected the weightier matters of the law. Their limited view of the tithe has led them to reject, to, 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 to um, neglect the weightier matters of the law. They have robbed from God by not having this more complete view. And so what are the weightier matters of the law? Well, Jesus has just explained that in the previous chapter. So if you look at our second reading that Annabeth did uh, in Matthew 23, Jesus is tested about the law. A Pharisee comes up to him and he's trying to trip him up by saying, what's the greatest commandment? You know, there's 613 commandments. You know, Jesus picks one of them, and then he nails them for not, uh, you know, picking another one. That was the plan. But Jesus answers that you have to love God. And then he says, that's not enough, though. You also have to love your neighbor. And Jesus won't allow 
it to be a decision between one or the other. Both components are necessary if we are to faithfully live God's vision of how people are supposed to act in the world. See, what Jesus has done here is he has refused to accept the dichotomy between duty to God and duty to neighbor. And that's a problem with what I'm telling you about uh, how we generally view the tithe. We think it's only about the church and worshiping God. And it's not. It's about our neighbor too. It's about building community. Both have to be part of our work. We can't have one without the other. Both are necessary if we are being the community God has called us to be. And that's what the tithe was all about. It's what the whole law is about, Jesus said. The law and the prophets depend on it. Both of those things have to be there. So the message to us is that we must try to reject, we must reject any division between the work of loving God and loving our neighbor. They go hand in hand. There's whole books in the Bible about this. We must ensure our vision of the work of God is a complete one if we are to be God's people. By all means, let us support the operation of the church. But let us also throw a party. Let's build community. Let's promote justice for the weak. And let us provide for the poor. Those are all holy works. And anything else, anything less, is a diminution of God's plan for his people. It is what it looks like. This is what it looks like to live our faith out in the world. God has promised that he will bless these endeavors as we work to bless our communities in the world. All right. That's tithing. So uh, here at Resurrection Church, uh, uh, we have a time of discussion. Uh, So if anybody has any uh, issue with anything I said, any questions, uh, anywhere I need to clarify, anyone want to call me a heretic, uh, this is the time to do so. Does anybody have anything? Yes, Dan. Second and third time, how was it collected? I have no idea. I, I think I would imagine because so interesting enough, uh, Dan, Dan raises a good point. You know, you read like Leviticus and Numbers and like Exodus, and there's all these laws, and you're like, oh my gosh, it's like all this detail. But like when you actually like try to figure out how a lot of this stuff was done, you realize there's a lot they left out. Um, and so it's speculation. My guess is that the priest and the individual towns were responsible for this. Like you would bring that to them and uh, do that. And, you know, I, I think the priests were probably involved in like a lot of stuff, like I said, that we would consider government, that like we would consider like government, like, like you know, the town probably needed a well. And, you know, uh, you know collecting the funds to like, uh, you know, build the well or something like that was probably in the priest's purview uh, from what we can tell. But, you know, it is hard when you figure out the practical details to this. Like one thing, here's a question I have. The seven-year cycle is like a big deal, okay? Now, I don't know how it worked that like in the third and sixth year, you collected money for the poor. Like what happened to the poor in the first, second? Like did they get paid out of that? You know, the only the third, like did they keep it in a big storehouse and then for the next, you know, two years they paid it out? Or, you know, was this staggered? Was all of Israel on the same seven-year cycle? Or, you know, I don't know. There's lots of people who write about this, but the short answer is there's a lot of detail that's left out about how this practically works. So I can't answer that question, but I would imagine it was the priest who collected it and then decided kind of how it worked. 
And that's partly why the priest's office was subject for abuse. And we definitely read about that in the Old Testament. Yeah. Anything else? Yes. wonder no no I, I think that is true I almost wonder if we do what we're supposed to do if God even needs to like supernaturally reach down from heaven and do it <laughs> you know like like if we actually like had that kind of impact in our community wouldn't it just be like a blessing like that's sort of what I think I, and, and you're right I did not pick up on the thread um, I actually had a section that I removed mostly because the sermon was getting really long and uh, you know uh, so, but yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a very good point. I kind of left that hanging to kind of like imply that that was the case, but yeah. I was going to say, it also probably changes our vision of testing a lot if it's not about an individual checking out whether God is honest to something and instead if it's about the vision essentially proving 